Uh, this morning's message comes from Nancy Eckert, a pastor from Green Lake. <laughs> Thank you, Lars. Thank you, Lars. Oh, I could just put myself on top. That's fine. Good. Well, good morning. Good morning. I do see a few familiar faces, thanks to the wonderful um, cheering section over here. Um, but yes, my name's Nancy Eckhart, and I'm one of the pastors um, at Bethany at Green Lake. I have been around Green Lake for a long, long time, like since 1985. So probably before some of you were even born, I have been associated with Bethany. So I've seen a lot of change. Um, one of the highlights being watching um, Bethany just spread out over the Seattle area. And so... It's good to be here today. I'm sure Prentice is keeping warm in Iceland. Why anyone would want to go to Iceland, I don't know. But there he is, and best wishes to him. Um, so we are wrapping up the Sermon, of the Sermon on the Mount um, sermon series today. And um, as I have kind of been a part of listening and writing sermon reflection questions throughout the last few weeks, I've found that it's just been a great way for us as God's people, as the participants in his kingdom, to kind of put a mirror up to ourselves and see how are we living into this kingdom that Jesus ushered in when he came to earth. I think in that last piece of scripture where it talks about being the salt of the earth and the, a light to the world, I think we can see that this kingdom is one that, is, that we are invited to is motivated by love and not fear. We can see that it's subversive, which means like salt, we seep into the context that God has put us in with Jesus' presence and character. But we also see that sometimes it is like a light on a hill. We invite people to that light but at the same time, we also can make ourselves a target for those who like the status quo and don't, be, don't want to be challenged to be anything different. And so as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we've just a quick review. I'm sure Prentice has done this for you as well, but it's always good to go back and be reminded of what God or what Jesus taught his disciples and what he is teaching us now. If we look at the first four, we see that they are foundational characteristics for those of us who are living into God's kingdom. When we're poor in spirit, it means we know our brokenness. When we mourn, it means we have the capacity to enter into those dark places of our lives and the lives of other, others, knowing that God will meet us there, and so we don't run away from those places. We are meek, and that means that when the world is trampling us underfoot, we remember that our identity is on the solid ground of who God says we are. And when we hunger for righteousness, it means that we're yearning to fill the emptiness in our lives and the emptiness that we see in the world with the righteousness, the shalom, the well-being of Christ. And then the next three are about how the people around us see us. We see blessed are the merciful. And because we see our reflection in the eyes of those that we come into contact with, we can be merciful to them knowing that we indeed are recipients of great mercy. We, can, we are pure in heart as we become devoted followers of Christ. We begin to 
deepen our motives so that our motives are based on God alone, not on any other agenda. And then we're peacemakers, where we find it in ourselves to create space for unity in God based on our common need for Christ. And so now we go into the last beatitude. And this one is what we can expect as we live into the kingdom. We'll discover it's not all butterflies and unicorns. We will not necessarily find favor with the status quo around us. Jesus outlines the character of his kingdom, which reflects his own character. And he doesn't want us to be surprised when we experience the resistance from those around us. This kingdom is radical, it's disruptive, and we cannot live into this kingdom and be unnoticed. We will be noticed, and at times, we will experience persecution. Now, we have to be careful not to label everything, every difficulty that we come up against as being persecution or resistance. As I thought about this, my first experience of, resist, of feeling resistance and even rejection came when I was in kindergarten. I still remember the room. I went to uh, Mount Lake Christian School, which is no longer there. I was in half-day kindergarten. Mrs. Bishop was my teacher. And I remember sitting all cross-legged on the floor, listening to her teach. I was sitting next to my friend, Jimmy Ward, and I needed to get his attention. And for some reason, in my kindergarten brain, I thought the best way to get his attention was to take my little fist and to hit him on his leg. Well, my best intentions were great. However, that was observed by the teacher and interpreted as an act of aggression. And so, as was the case back then, I got a slap on the hand with a ruler. Not persecution, although I felt very misunderstood. Interestingly enough, the second time I experienced difficulty or a sense of resistance was that same year in the afternoon kindergarten. Now, I didn't always go to afternoon kindergarten, but one of the times I did, we had extra playtime, and I thought it would be a great time for me to um, be helpful. And, you know, back in the day where we had chalkboards, you'd have to beat the erasers together, right, to get the chalk out so that they would work well, and that was kind of a daily chore. Well, I wanted, of course, to be helpful, and so, during free time, I decided it, I would beat the, erasers, beat the erasers. Well, I did not beat the erasers together outside, as was the custom. I decided to beat them on the nearest table next to the chalkboard. Again, best intentions. The teacher did not appreciate my actions. And once again, a rap with the ruler on my hand. Again, obviously, they, those two experiences made an impact on me, but I don't think we could call those persecution. And so we all have to be careful as we experience difficulty in our lives to make sure that we don't attach persecution and resistance and rejection to everything that happens to us. And so in order for us to recognize what truly is resistance and re rejection, based on our participation in God's kingdom, 
We need to open ourselves up to the inner transformation that God may be doing in us, even in the midst of the external pressures that we are experiencing. And so in the text today, there are three reasons why we may experience persecution. When we long for righteousness, when we choose Jesus above all else, and when we are following the example of those who have gone before us. So let's pray and then dig in. Gracious God, thank you for the privilege of being here. Lord, thank you for these people who have come this morning to worship you. God, I pray that I would not get in the way of the words that you want them to hear this morning. God, be faithful to us this morning, and we will be grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. So we experience persecution or resistance when, first of all, we long for righteousness. When we live according to kingdom values, we will find that there are sharp differences at times between um, what those kingdom values look like and what the cultural norms are. And so as we described a few weeks ago, we could describe or define righteousness as that longing for shalom, that for all that God desires for us, longing for God himself, where everything is put right again. For example, maybe several weeks ago, many of us longed for women of all ages to feel valued, respected, not belittled, not in fear of being assaulted or mistreated. And so many of us joined a march, not because we agreed with each one of the millions of men and women who showed up, but because at the core of that movement is the conviction that all humans are created in the image of God and hold equal value in his kingdom. Those of us who participated in the Women's March were willing to risk our own honor of being, having our own honor being called into question by others who were sitting on the sidelines who may have mistaken are longing for righteousness as indulging the sin of the world. I think of another woman in, Bethany's, in the Bethany congregation at Green Lake who's been involved volunteering with the, sex, um, the victims of sex trafficking in Seattle. And um, as she got to know more and more about what was happening and she began focusing on the root of what causes this to happen, she began sensing this call to go back to school and get her master's in social work. And so in spite of having two young children at home and a very busy, busy life, she followed Christ back to the University of Washington and she's getting her master's degree in social work. And as she goes through the classes, she is enduring the cynical and derogatory language that people have towards Jesus and Christians. And so the very Jesus that she followed into that program, she hears over and over again the angst of the people who don't truly know who Jesus is, and yet there she is. We can also go back to 1963 when Martin Luther Luther King sat in a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was addressing the concerns of the local clergy who weren't weren't very excited, in fact, were critical of the ways that he was handling the abuse against the black community there. And he responded to these clergymen saying, 
While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with a superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with the underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. Martin Luther King Jr. hungered for righteousness, that deep, deep-rooted righteousness, and the result for him was deep resistance and persecution by those who desired the status quo. When we pursue shalom, peace and well-being for all people, not just for those who benefit by the status quo, we will experience resistance by those who have much to lose. Now, there's a significant thing, I think, for us to remember as we, um, as those who carry the righteousness of God. We must remember that even as we carry the righteousness of God, we are indeed broken people ourselves. Paul knew about this when he said in 2 Corinthians 4 that we carry the presence of God in clay pots. He knows that along the way, because we carry God's glory into the world in broken, in broken pottery, people will miss the glory of God that we carry because they will focus on us, the clay pot. Resistance and rejection can come when in spite of our brokenness, we pursue the righteousness of Christ and those around us unfortunately see not our desire for the world to be made right, but instead they see what is wrong with us. And I'll say as a woman in ministry, I have tripped over this many times. I have spoken out for things that I believe needed to be made right. Unfortunately, any truth that was in what I had to say got lost in the delivery. How easy it is at times for hearers to reject the words of truth that they may be hearing and dismiss it as adversarial rather than hearing the truth because of its delivery. And these moments for me, although they've been difficult, they've given me the opportunity to admit my own need for transformation, even as I experience the resist resistance from those who don't necessarily want to hear what I have to say. And so when I can reflect on these encounters with a desire for my own transformation, I can keep my hunger for righteousness of God from becoming self-righteousness. I want to see the righteousness of God not only in the places around me, but the righteousness of God in myself as well. And so transformation becomes a part of the process of persecution. When we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, we experience the resistance of those who need to see and hear about the righteousness of Christ through us. And it's always good to remember that we are clay pots and we have that opportunity to be transformed as well.
And so we may experience resistance and persecution through, um, through um, pursuing righteousness, but we also may pursue it when we choose Jesus above all else. The goal of the kingdom is Jesus. It's easy to focus on the work of the, of the kingdom to pursue those things which perhaps put the kingdom in good light among our neighbors, our good works in the community, our programs that might build people up, those things that can be identified by the outside world as works worthy of being, uh, being affirmed. But if we see in John 7, Jesus had a different message when he came. We see that he had begun his ministry. He had done miraculous things like turning water into wine. He had performed other miracles. He had healed many people. He had fed thousands of people with a very small lunch. He had taught people. And so this, this festival was coming up, this Feast of Booths that the Jewish community um, celebrated every year. And Jesus' brothers came to him and said, this is your chance to go public. Come to Jerusalem with us. Show us all these wonderful miracles, and here's your chance to shine in the sun. Perhaps the brothers were hoping that maybe they too would get a little bit of fame if Jesus came with them, and they wouldn't be the brothers of that crazy guy who keeps doing weird things. But Jesus wasn't on earth to do miracles. He was on earth to introduce people to himself. And so when he did go to the festival, it was a few days later, and he went secretly. And when he did finally appear publicly, it was to invite people to himself, to be filled in their, their souls with water, that would never, so that they would never be thirsty again. It wasn't to overthrow an evil regime that his people felt they were under or to regain power that had been lost. It wasn't to ensure a life free from suffering and difficulty. What he promised, what he offered, what he invited people to was himself. His spirit filling up the emptiness of lives by when they were open to receiving him. I'm sure they heard echoes of Isaiah 55, where it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, and you who have no money, come by and eat. Come to the water. And so his invitation was met by some with belief. Some believed him and chose him. Even the temple police who had been sent to arrest him, they couldn't arrest him for they were stirred by what he was saying and believed. But by others, they, he, he was rejected. He was rejected by those whose religion, whose well-being was based on structures, structures that Jesus was coming to destroy. Their religion was static and based on these structures, and Jesus was inviting the people to a dynamic relationship with him, free of structure. And when we choose Jesus, we may be called to give up culturally acceptable values and practices for him. We may experience in that misunderstanding and resistance and rejection. 
Now we're going to go way back to 155 AD. There was a, a man named Polycarp. This was during the time when many Christians were being, um, were being martyred. He was scheduled to be martyred as a great example to the Christians to instill fear in them. He was well known in the area. Many of his friends encouraged him to flee, and, and for a while he did. He had many people who were willing to hide him. But as he was fleeing, he also was maintaining his relationship with Christ. And at some point, he realized that God was telling him to stop running and to be willing to die for his Lord. And so he stopped running. He let the authorities catch up to him. And on his way, many people encouraged him to denounce Christ, to do whatever he could to save his life. And finally, there in the arena, he had his last chance to denounce Christ and declare Caesar as Lord. And he said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? As I read this, I wondered, man, is my, is my faith in Christ worthy of giving up all for him? Am I more tied to cultural influences or props that I rely on to keep me from wholehearted devotion to Christ in order to make my life more palatable to those around me? What about you? Last week, we talked about peacemaking. We were reminded that we were adopted, that God went outside the camp to where he had abandoned, to where we had been abandoned and helpless, and he chose us to be adopted as his children with a new identity, a new name, a new family, and debts canceled. And on, the, and on this foundation of love, we go into our community and build a unity based on that love. It's a, ba it's a love, it's a foundation that crosses divides and aren't there divides in our culture and communities today. We remember that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and we seek to cultivate a peace among people that transcends the current culture and pursues a unity that's inspired by the way that God chose us in love off the hill of exposure and adopted us as his children. And then in seeking common ground between two sides at deep odds, we will often find ourselves at the risk of being reviled and misunderstood. Too liberal, too conservative, too progressive, too traditional, all these different words that are used to put us in boxes when we follow Christ. Those who might find their identity and security in the extremities of divisions are averse to finding unity in Christ because their sense of self, their sense of rightness is rooted in their position. And I think we all find ourselves in that place at times. But when we live for Jesus who called us to unity, we will be called to step into those divisions and invite others to find common good and unity. And no doubt, that will put us in a position 
of being a lightning rod during a thunderstorm. And again, this is a process of transformation for us. If you look at back at Moses, he was raised in Pharaoh's, um, in, in Pharaoh's palace, and yet he was Hebrew by birth, and he did not forget that. So as he was out wandering one day, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And in order to protect his countryman, he actually killed the Egyptian. And then he went back into the palace. And then a few days later, he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he came up to them to try to break it up. And they turned, instead of fighting each other, they turned on him. And they said, are you going to kill us too, just like you killed that Egyptian? And all of a sudden, Moses realized that he needed to be transformed in the way that he brought peace to his people. And it took him 40 years in the desert before he could come back and be that person that God used to rescue his people from, um, from the Egyptians. So again, as our pursuit of righteousness is a place of transformation for us, so is our pursuit of Christ. As we seek to be of one mind toward him, we will discover along the way what we need to let go of in order to pursue Christ more wholeheartedly. And often we learn that when we are feeling the resistance and rejection of others. And finally, when we are persecuted, we know that we are in good company and that we are following the example of those who have gone before us for the kingdom. Let me read a description from Hebrews of those who have gone before us. In Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 38, the author says, What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And women received their dead by resurrection, but others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. And so these are, this is a description of the people that have gone before us. And we can be encouraged by them and challenged by their faithfulness to God. As you read these names, that the author ran down Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and other prophets. Not all of those, those names are probably familiar, but some of them, you, you do know enough about them to know that they were in no way perfect, but they were faithful. And through their faithfulness, they furthered the work of God in the world. 
and pointed the next generation to the kingdom that was coming. We have the privilege of living and learning vicariously through them, through what they saw, through what they said. And we can be encouraged by them and challenged and blessed to know that even as we live into the kingdom now, we are participating in that same kingdom that generations to come will be invited to participate in. And then after this description, the author goes on to say in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, and this is what I want to leave us with this morning as we consider what it means to continue to live into the kingdom of God. He writes, therefore, and if you look back, therefore, because of the example of those who came before, imperfect though they were, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Christ is the one that invites us to the kingdom. He's the one who completes us. He's the one who saves us, and he's the one who exemplifies for us this life of the kingdom that he calls us to. Remember that we are a great cloud of witnesses. Let's be willing to lay aside the structures that keep us from wholeheartedly following Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race of righteousness that is set before us. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus and consider the path that he took difficult though it was for the joy that was set before him. Our transformation is part of this journey as we live into the kingdom of God. Resistance and, res and rejection by those along the way is part of that journey. But the goal of the journey is Jesus. And when we keep our eyes on him, we find him. And in finding him, we will experience the joy that transcends the journey. Let's pray together. Gracious God, I thank you for just the picture of you sitting down with your close followers around you. With the crowd there as well, clamoring for attention and yet you take the time to lay out to these de devoted disciples what it means to follow you. And God, that your words are still applicable to us today. God, I pray that you would bring to mind these, this instruction, this, this just wonderful passage of blessing that you bestow on your followers, of your followers as we begin to learn what it means, both for our own lives and for the lives of those around us. Continue to work in us through this passage, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.